Fifty Shades of Grey is uh, maybe the wet dream of everyone <laughs> who writes or, or uh, you know, wants to get rich because, of course, she made a lot of money. She did. Hi, welcome to the second episode of the podcast of the Institute of Network Cultures, Zero Infinite. And today we're talking about digital publishing or hybrid publishing, print-on-demand publishing, all different kinds of publishing uh, like we perform and research at the INC. My name is Miriam and I'm here in the studio with my colleague Leonike. Hello. And we will be talking well, somewhat remotely with some other people who we interviewed about their view of publishing their own projects and their idea about the future of publishing. So, Leonike, can you start maybe by saying very shortly something about INC and publishing in general? Yeah, so um, uh, publishing is one of our core research projects. And, well, we always try to experiment ourselves as well. So, uh, for example, with this podcast, but also last year we started uh, a long form series, which is an online series in which we use uh, multimedia, lots of videos and pictures. And uh, yeah, that's an ongoing research, I would say. Yeah. And I think, of course, a lot of this has come out of the project we did already a couple of years ago, the Digital Publishing Toolkit, which turned into the Hybrid Publishing Toolkit. It was a project in collaboration with a lot of different designers and developers and, uh, of course, the University of Applied Science in Rotterdam, Florian Kramer, and which eventually even turned into our own department, so to speak, the publishing lab. And what kind of came out of that, I would say, was a new idea of uh, workflow management when it comes to hybrid publishing. So we spent a lot of time thinking about efficient workflows, single source documents, multiple outputs and stuff like that. And it has really helped us develop, I guess, uh, many of our own publications. But now we see, strange enough, or maybe it's not even strange, we will talk about it later, that the idea of this efficient uh, workflow, we are kind of straying away from it, maybe? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even with uh, something like the long form, you know, it's it's yet a different way of publishing for ourselves. But also specifically two projects that we've been working for uh, on for a long time and that have now uh, been published. Both were collaborations and one, uh, the one that I'm talking about is the work of Wim Nijenhuis, The Riddle of the Real City, which is published by 1001 Publishers here in Amsterdam and the INC will be uh, releasing the EPUB very soon. And there we see um, a very singular and special paper edition that has come out of that. It has been designed by OSP in Brussels using a new kind of workflow, which is using HTML to print. But the end result is like a very high quality, thick paper, lots of illustrations, different fonts use, etc. So it doesn't really fit in into the hybrid publishing workflow as we know it. No, it doesn't. But it's it's a beautiful book. And um, yeah, I'm very excited that we uh, we will see this uh, EPUB soon or the digital uh, format. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the other one is uh, a publication that was released late last year, which is a 3D additivist cookbook. And that is, uh, well, that only exists in a digital form. And in what kind of digital form? I mean, it's like hundreds of megabytes in size, very heavy, uh, but it's accompanied even by a torrent that, that gives you like gigabytes of information and documents and and um, to go to our first little uh, audio clip uh, we took that from uh, the Transmediale Festival where the 3D Editivist cookbook was launched. We're hearing Daniel Rook and Morshin Alahari who are the editors of the 3D Editivist cookbook uh, talk a little bit about the background of the project and uh, the choices that they made. Okay, so with um, all these ideas and kind of stories came together for us to um, write a manifesto, which is um, a text we wrote in 2015, and um, it was kind of uh, a way to call for designers, scientists, artists, activists um, to respond and submit their recipes, essays, um, templates, and then their art projects for um, this thing that then would become the 3D Additivist Cookbook. So one of the terms that we coined was this term, which is additivism, which is a combination of the two words additive, additive technologies, like a 3D printer, which is an additive, it's layer by layer printing something, versus a subtractive technology, let's say a laser cut. So we wanted to bring together these two terms, um, the coming together of additive and then activism. And activism became something that we started to talk a lot about, not, not um, just we wanted to um, kind of like look for projects or um, make a project that would um, actually have these speculative futuristic ways of thinking about the future, but also we wanted to have a project that would respond to the current political, social, cultural issues um, that, that we're dealing with as humans. So additivism became in many ways a collective for us, a community. We have been having a very active Facebook page um, that people share ideas on. There's like always discussions and articles, not just around 3D printing, but many other concepts that they just use basically these kind of way of thinking um, as, as a point of departure. And then we've been giving workshops going um, all around the world talking about um, ideas around additivism. So- we have obviously so many different themes and things going on here. One of the ways that we decided to organize the book was to play on all of the, the idea of themes, the idea of categories, the idea of kind of blending and mel- melding things together. And we came up with these tags that run through the book. So if you're seeing this in the exhibition, every project has a set of tags on the top right of the project, which separate it into three themes and then by going through the tags you can browse other tag uh, other projects that sit into similar kind of in between strange categories this was a way for us to give the pdf a kind of hypertextual quality and allow different ways of navigation and different ways to maneuver through the book but it also creates the book as this kind of open space um, we don't want to think of it as a linear space that needs to be read from back to front. We want people to explore in it and get lost, and this is really exciting for us. So yeah, there we heard uh, Morshin and Daniel talking about kind of how they started the whole Editivist uh, project. 
And I think what's really interesting is that they kind of reflect on the way that a publication or a book can be something more than just an object, but it has a certain role in a community or in a group of, of, of like-minded people. Yes, and, and like you said, it's more like an, like an open space and it really gives us a chance to, yeah, new ways of, of reviewing the book and what the book can be or, or is. So what can the book do or be if we take it out of this kind of enclosed model where it's just like an object that is being sold and bought and read and put on a shelf after it's finished? I think that's also something that many people are theorizing about and and thinking about. And one of them is uh, Janneke Adema and Leonike, you talked to her a little bit about this subject, right? Yes, yes. Janneke Adema is a research fellow in the Digital Media Center of Disrupted Media of Coventry University. And she really focuses on the material discursive practices of scholarly research and communication. Um, yeah, and she she thinks about the book as an, as an apparatus. If we kind of start thinking about what this means for the book, um, for me, it, it makes more sense to see the book as an apparatus. So what that means is that in scholarship and in a general discourse around the book, what has normally happened is that the book is kind of seen and described in a kind of objective way. So that means disconnected from, from us as scholars or as, as readers and writers and disconnected from um, unrelated to our communication practices. So it's kind of an, an object that, that either has agency uh, or it has agency inflicted upon it. So we're talking about technological determinism and, um, and, and culturalism in which either the book is seen as something that, that changes, as an agent of change, as Elizabeth Eisenstein is saying, or on the other hand, it is something that... Um, that, that our culture and our systems and our political economy uh, inflict certain um, things upon. So this kind of object-centered approach, instead of that, I'd like to see it much more as a kind of interconnected and relational process uh, or an event. So what you see in, in these kind of the book is that there's a kind of a causal relationship between you have on the one hand you have the book and on the other hand you have culture and society on the other hand. So I don't see the book as this kind of object, as a simple tool, um, but it's something that we are integrally entangled with as researchers. So the, the, so we cannot be disentangled from the book. Uh, and at the same time, the book and society cannot be disconnected in this kind of oppositional thinking. So I think we need to give due recognition to the inherent connectedness of the various elements and agencies that are involved in this becoming of the book and in, in the way that this apparatus of the books and this consists of a kind of entanglement of relationships and this includes authors and the book and, and the outside world and readers but also for instance the material uh, production and the political economy of, of, of book publishing as well as the discourses surrounding that and all this kind of these things together form a kind of agentic process that cuts in a certain way. So in this sense, what I want to focus on is that books are not disconnected from us as scholars. They're not disconnected from the environment. Uh, they are performative. They are reality shaping. And I think that we are not taking enough responsibility at this moment as scholars or as publishers of, or even as, as the academic system as a whole uh, for the cuts and the decisions that we make with and through this book as an apparatus. <laughs> 
What I really like about her approach is that she tries to look at this, well, the, the, this book thing as something with an agency. And I think, uh, of course, this has a long history in, you know, the history of the book, but it gets new significance and um, a new kind of opening up through digital technology and the possibilities that digital technology offer book publishing. I think if I look back at, you know, what we were talking about with the hybrid publishing toolkit and, you know, our workflow that should be as efficient as possible, we were very much focused on making digital publications uh, and using the technology in that sense. But now that it's kind of known how to do that and everyone can participate in that, I think there's more an idea of opening up the whole field of thinking about what the book does. and Or what it can be, maybe. I agree, because it's not just, like we also said, you know, working with the hybrid publishing workflow, it's not just about having an e-book pasted at the end of the bookmaking process, but it's really thinking about possibilities that should be implemented from the start. And in that sense, I think once we really implement digital technologies more from the start of, of the bookmaking process, we kind of, uh, you know, we've left behind the whole idea of digital revolutions, etc. And maybe we enter like the post-digital age. I guess so, yeah. It's not only coming with technical values, but... Um, what Janneke mentioned, it's also coming with more cultural values. And um, Yeah, and I think that, that this concept of the post-digital is a way to kind of capture that. I talked about that with uh, Michael Dieter, who's a long-time collabor collaborator with the INC. He's now an assistant professor uh, at the University of Warwick and uh, working a lot on uh, publishing and, and other um, digital media and networking technology and their impact in, in society. So he talks a little bit about what is then the post-digital. clear way to think about it is to go back to what Kim Cascone was talking about in the article Aesthetics of Failure from, I guess it's uh, early 2000s. It might even be late 90s. It certainly comes out of the net late 90s with those musicians that were exploring glitch. And, you know, his claim about post-digital at that point was that digitization was more or less completed when it came to music production in the sense of the, the computer being placed absolutely central um, to all aspects of music recording and production. Um, so in a, in a sense, the digital had become completely hegemonic. And then the interesting gesture was to sort of explore the gaps, the silences, the errors, the things that were kind of left out of digital processing insofar as it had become formalized. So, you know, when he was talking about it, it's on the one hand a kind of like technical process, but it also comes with a set of cultural values, you know, to do with, let's say, optimization of signal processing, um, a kind of uh, slick and seamless mode of production and compression all of which the glitch could gain traction on. If I think about like that claim that he's making in terms of what it would mean to start talking about post-digital today, then there's a, a much broader set of considerations that come with uh, the computer, let's say, being central to cultural production at large rather than just music in particular. Mm -hmm. So there you get not just like the 
the computer in the sense of uh, being a tool, but also as being like absolutely central to um, all of these uh, infrastructural questions that are attached to you know our everyday lives and cultural communication. So there it's also a story about platformatization, for instance, and the optimization processes that go along with the business models, for instance, of service for profile and data balance. And what I'm basically saying is that it was also connected to networking. Then you have something like the re-centralization of computing, and all of that kind of speaks to the digital condition that I think the post-digital is referring back to or referring to. What I think the post-digital is trying to do is open up a new space for the imaginary, really, in relation to a kind of closing down of the imaginary, not just around what digital technologies could be or what they could be used for, but um, more fundamentally in, in terms of epistemology, how we know uh, the social, how we know each other, how we know ourselves. Um, so I think there's some there's some pretty high stakes for the post-digital, actually, when it comes to opening up again that space of the imaginary. But, you know, how far you can go with the post-digital as a kind of perspective or a concept in relation to those stakes is probably a, a different question. Yeah, so that was Michael Dieter um, talking a little bit about what the post-digital is. And I, I really like what he says about um, the digital uh, often referring to this like shiny Silicon Valley, you know, seamless, frictionless design, you know, hiding as much as possible of, of the technology behind it. And the post-digital uh, being a way of, of, of kind of taking back the, you know, all the possibilities that technology has, but without uh, making it all, you know, uh, look the same. So the digital is not just a tool then? Well, the post-digital kind of puts on the foreground that it's not just a tool, but that it it's become much more than that. It's become a cultural factor in every aspect of, of what we do and what we know and how we think, especially when it comes to cultural products or products of knowledge or, uh, you know, knowledge dissemination, which, of course, the books and the book industry have, have something to do with. And just to give a little example of that, it would be nice to hear some more about our 3D Additivist cookbook and their inspirations. We've said many times over the last year or two that if we were alive in the 1970s, Morrison and I would have probably written a manifesto for the photocopier. Um, Again, this sounds kind of ridiculous, but we take this deadly seriously. There's lots of things in common with the photocopier and with the 3D printer. In the 1970s, the photocopier went from being a tool of industrial design to something that people had access to on the high street. And with that shift from a very mundane, simple technology, you had the emergence of entire cultures of, of, of people expressing themselves, the punk scene movement, um, the, the, the male art movement, both of these things are very grassroots, they give people a voice and they are instrumental in, in these communities building over time and a lot of radical um, um, creative revolutionary ideas were shared using this very simple technology. And this, again, is, is something not just that we want to uh, consider as a model for what the 3D printer is today, but also we want to hark back to this time of uh, copying, photocopying, passing things on. 
One of another model that we uh, that we uh, reflect on is the anarchist cookbook, which every time you say the cookbook, uh, this name kind of echoes in the background. And we can talk at length about why the anarchist cookbook is good or bad, whether it did influence people to commit um, terrorist acts, or whether it was a book more uh, likely to instill kind of creative utopian ideas in people. But one of the things that we're interested in is that the anarchist cookbook originally, it was printed in a very small print run, about 500 copies, and it, and it achieved its notoriety not as a printed book, but as a photocopied book, exactly the time when the photocopy was making its way into the high street. The anarchist cookbook was copied, passed on, edited, added to, and it, and it moved its way through the, the, the following decades. And this is something that we think that the, the PDF, as a kind of chintzy, simple format, um, allows us to kind of replicate that in, in this kind of digital aesthetic. The PDF's not perfect, but anybody with a computer running Adobe from the year 2000 onwards can load this file, can interact with the 3D models, and can copy and pass, pass it on. Rather than building a website for the 3D Adventist cookbook, we believe that the PDF has more capability to travel, to maneuver, to be printed out and passed on and edited. A website can be blocked by the firewall of your university or even your country if um, the content is deemed to be um, 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 not, not acceptable. But a PDF, you can put that on a USB stick, pass it to your friend slyly in the computer lab and whistle your way out of the, out of the, the space. So here we hear very clearly that the photocopier was their inspiration. They chose PDF as their output format, but yeah. there's even more to it, I guess. Yeah, they 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 dug up this old PDF, uh, 3D PDF format uh, out of the I think the Adobe Archive, and yeah, like he said, it's more it's a more sustainable um, document than when you make a web page, or um, it it can travel around from person to person, just like maybe our videotapes did. Um, in the 90s. <laughs> More so than YouTube does. Well, uh, if, if YouTube um, disappears, yeah. can they still travel around? Maybe that is also kind of the logic behind uh, many post-digital publishing projects which uh, involve like printing the web, printing the whole of Wikipedia, I mean, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is kind of uh, crazy, to be honest. Um, yeah, but it's uh, it's a more sustainable way of publishing, I guess. And I think this is also what Michael is talking about when he talks about post-digital publishing, that we really have to look for these more sustainable uh, ways of publishing. Yeah, let's have a listen. I think that there's some interesting work that's been done with this concept of post-digital when it comes to publishing. And of course, Alessandro Ludovico's work, you know, has been, I think, really productive in using this concept to highlight continuities, along with like redefining, let's say, what might be different between what we think of as digital and what we think of as paper print when it comes to publishing practices. And, you know, that's been something that Alessandro has been working on, obviously, for a long time. It comes out of his own experience producing Neural over so many years. And I think his interest in it, it's, as, it's both, I think, practical and, and aesthetic and experimental. Um, the practical side of it, I think, is really just about sustaining a project like Neural 
and you know being in dialogue with other independent publishers like Mute, uh, who were also covering media arts, and just thinking about uh, you know what it means to you know sustain uh, initiatives like that um, when it comes to labor and funding and different business models, and and doing all of that with still a strong investment in open and public culture and a critical culture. It's not exactly like media archaeology, but it's some kind of like historical method that he's taken up to, to really reveal all of these moments over time where technology was fundamentally transforming the publishing industry and uh, and unleashing what were experimental dynamics and uh, you know reviewing that history both in terms of uh, let's say critically questioning some of the more apocalyptic uh, claims around digital processes when it comes to um, publishing. Um, so on the one hand, like demonstrating how a lot of the fears and anxieties people have go back quite some time. For instance, when it comes to like, let's say the impact uh, that digital publishing might have on literacy or attention. It's a way to, to look critically at that, but also to, to reveal that there are so much potential that is still present, both within the archive. So how we look back on those uh, old experiments and how we can be inspired by them and uh, perhaps rework and um, re-implement particular um, initiatives um, that were, remain unfulfilled. Um, but also to, I think, like keep us inspired about, you know, what we can do in the present with, uh, with all of this technology. You know, and, and again, I think that's where the post-digital comes in in terms of sparking the imaginary again. It's not necessarily like a utopian imaginary, but, you know, certainly... Uh, opening up a space for thinking about what's possible. So that was Michael Dieter again. And just to mention the book once more, Post-Digital Print, The Mutation of Publishing Since 1894 by Alessandro Ludovico. It was published by Onomatope, a publisher here in the Netherlands. And that is actually already five years ago. It's from 2012, but still a landmark text, I guess. And really something that set, you know, uh, in motion a lot of research and experiments into publishing. Yeah, so I think there are still a lot of experiments within publishing uh, and also within uh, scholarly publishing. And yeah, I think we have to listen to a clip now from Janneke, who's talking about the experiments happening there. When we start to experiment with the book, we do need to start thinking about these kind of ideas that we have inherited with the book and with the humanities. So this ideas of the proprietorial author, uh, of originality, of copyright, and also accompanying practice of reading uh, and how we write and interpret it. Um, but there are a lot of people that are already doing this kind of experimentation. And within um, scholarly publishing, for example, we're seeing some interesting experiments for... for uh, with, with new forms of, of, of review, for example, with open peer reviews. Um, there's a lot of academics who are starting to critique this myth of the single individual author by for exploring more forms of um, collaborative and anonymous authorship, for example, publishing in wikis, like we've done with Living Books About Life series. There's a lot of people who are challenging this idea of the commodification of scholarship by looking at, at open access publishing and looking at gift economies, um, or people who are trying out uh, the reuse and remixing of material, and in this sense, critiquing the objectification, this kind of bound nature of the book, uh, this project that they're looking at 
at more at processual works, uh, at liquidities and versionings of books. And then there's also a lot of software. University of Minnesota Press is doing a, a project called Manifold at the moment in which they're looking at, at versioned books. But I think what's most important for me is that when we do these experiments with the book and around the book and rethinking these aspects of uh, of the book that um, that it's really about rethinking our system of knowledge production in the humanities. There is a move towards what you would say more enhanced publications. So these are publications that then get data added on or images inserted. Uh, but it doesn't really fundamentally rethink the book in that sense. It's a, it becomes this kind of add-on. And I'm not saying that that's not interesting or relevant also to scholarship to start doing these kind of things. But from my perspective, what I'm interested in is, is actually, okay, if we are going to do this, what, what does it actually mean to communicate more via images, for example, or via videos instead of this kind of text-based argument that, um, that we tend to present within our, our print-based humanities? So Janneke is really talking a lot about, I think, breaking this model of publishing as it was traditionally open and allowing in, you know, many different forms, many different users or readers, many different kinds of publishers or authors or, you know, um, using video, using audio, etc. She's, of course, working a lot on publishing within an academic context. Uh, but you might even say, you know, when these questions start becoming relevant in an academic context, which is so, you know, centered and focused on text production, then there's really something going on. Yes, if they say <laughs> we need to rethink our knowledge production, then uh, Then we definitely change. do, yeah. What I like so much about all these new projects is that it's not about a target audience that you're going to target, but it's really about what Janneke also says about diverse context yes. of, of, of players, of re readers, a diverse ecology, as she, as she calls it. And it's at least also something that Michael refers to in, in this next clip. While, you know, publishing might be taking a step further once you start incorporating video and stuff like that, Michael kind of starts to question the whole idea of the reader. I've been trying to think about what might be at stake in the transition for designing for um, a user of information rather than a reader of information. And, you know, that, that, that was really one of the issues early on in the 90s when professional web design was being articulated. It was how do you merge all of these aspects of um, print publishing, like copywriting, graphic design, layouts, with uh, the engineering aspects of the web, um, so the more, like, computer science dimensions. And I guess some of that has come together in what we would now call user experience design or UX But it's a completely different figure that is central to, to that production process. It's not the reader, it's the user. For some people, it's, you know, it's not even the user. It's just, you know, people. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess I'm thinking about analogies to, to the idea of hermeneutics in reading practices. So maybe instead of hermeneutics, we have like diagnostics or something as like a critical um, interface strategy. I don't know whether that's particularly post-digital, but I think it's worth mentioning because uh, it made me think of something else, that publishing is not confined to publishers anymore. And certainly when, you know, one of the interesting aspects of the web initially was the fact that 
so many people had an opportunity to to publish. I mean, we could debate about whether publishing was is the right word for what what was going on there, but you know, that's uh, that's certainly what I think of, and I think that perhaps the post digital condition is also about us reflecting on what exactly was going on there, what exactly happens uh, in the shift from reader to user, um, from book to interface. And then, you know, if we if we take the post digital as a, as a kind of imaginary. Maybe one thing that would be helpful to really animate that imaginary would be to perhaps have a better sense of what kind of publishing is occurring today. Um, you know, where it happens, how it happens, something like a taxonomy of sorts of publishing practices. We need a taxonomy of publishing, but where to start if we can't even focus on the reader, but we have to look at users. We can't focus on the book, but we have also to think about interface. Uh, we can't focus on text, but should also look at video, etc. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. <laughs> What I like about it is that publishing is, is not only confined to the publishers anymore. And, and that's interesting because, yeah, last week um, there was uh, one of our biggest radio stations, Radio One. They did an item on yeah self-publishing after Fifty Shades of Grey is becoming more <laughs> and more popular. And there are more platforms for it as well here in the Netherlands. Yeah, and I think, uh, of course, Fifty Shades of Grey is uh, maybe the wet dream of everyone who <laughs> writes or, or uh, you know, wants to get rich because, of course, she made a lot of money. She did. But there are also other interesting, uh, successful examples of that, at least here in the Netherlands. So, yeah, we could we could say that every single point in the chain of the publishing model is kind of um, opened up, right? Yes, yes, because Michael is talking about users in, instead of readers. And, yeah, what happens when we approach it this way? What happens when, yeah, we take it a step further and, you know, start to write together? The author was already dead for decades, <laughs> but now we're going to have a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> But I think one thing that maybe post-digital can give us the opportunity to do is maybe move beyond this kind of very formalist way of understanding cultural production attached to software or digital processes and take us into not only this thing about the imaginary that I've been mentioning, but um, a sense of like technique. So it's not just publishing in the sense of like, you know, here is the book, here's the product, but publishing is an act, right? As like an action. Um, as something that you do. And that's also another way to get at this kind of taxonomy, maybe, of publishing, is really to emphasize it as an action. Um, and then something like, for instance, book sprints, I think becomes really interesting as an example of how to think through uh, post-digital publishing in a way that would emphasize technique and a different way of kind of weaving together collective knowledge It also, of course, raises questions like the dissemination of agile work practices and software methods, uh, production methods, you know, into the cultural, into cultural sectors and domains. But perhaps that's an interesting thing to also just be reflecting on and, and acknowledging. Again, there's something that strikes me as kind of fundamentally post-digital about that. Now we've kind of definitely arrived in the future, I guess. And uh, it would be nice maybe to let the listeners who've, who've come this far know a little bit about our own future plans. Yes, we, we have a lot of plans, actually. Um, 
recently we started a international consortium or we brought together a group of uh, international people and we're looking really at future research into future publishing. Yeah, and uh, Michael and Janneke were also part of that. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm very excited that we're uh, starting a new research project. And yeah, if we have more, uh, I guess we let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think in the future there will even still be books? Well, I hope so, because uh, really a book can be a beautiful object, maybe even some artistic thing to hold and to see. Um, But I really think that um, we have to rethink the digital side of the book. And I think there's there's more there than we have now. Of course, now we have this remediation of the, the book, the object that we know. And I really think that maybe in the digital everything can change, even the single mm-hmm. arter, as we talked about. Um, and we've been experimenting with that, actually, with a, a tool called Edit This Post. And we're really visiting um, dance uh, festivals now. And we try to write with the public there and see what they think about the show and what they've seen. Yeah, and also really looking at how you can come to a text together. Yes. And yeah. not just on your own. I must say, I I love books and I have many, many paper books in my home, but I really hope that the book will not just be an art object in the future, but also will just be that scrummy paperback that you bring on your holiday and devour on the beach and then keep on your shelf for for many years. Yeah, well, to close off with, with... a vision for for the future even beyond the book or the digital book or the paper or the artist book whatever a little quote from Janneke who, who's talking about post-humanities and that is something that she's diving into with her colleagues and of course it, it rings a bell with post-humanism post-humans Anthropocene etc <laughs> The post-humanities is a kind of an ongoing reflection on what would be uh, alternative, affirmative, disruptive future humanities that questions its own, what we call its humanist legacy uh, in an ongoing manner. Um, So this, in that sense, relates more directly to theories around uh, the post-human and post-humanism. And these are kind of theories that argue that the, the, the boundaries um, between the human and animal and technology and the environment has been eroded. Yeah? So there's no more centrality of the human in that system. So it, it explores what the underlying humanist legacies within our performance of scholarship are. Um, so how does this theorizing around the post-human affect the practice of the humanities today? That's the kind of question that we ask. We leave you with the post-human. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But we will continue as INC, of course, uh, researching and publishing and making books and uh, publishing long-form essays and making podcasts. Yes. This was the second episode and we're already looking into what the third will be about. Stay tuned for that. Of course, we thank Janneke Adema, Michael Dieter, Daniel Rourke and Morshin Alahari. If you want to know more about all the publications that we've named, please visit our website, which is networkcultures.org. Then, of course, the last thing will be 
our podcast jingle, which was made by Henry Warwick. Thank you.